Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm co-host Paul Anderson here this week with no Pete Wall as he's moving house uh, and is very busy, but uh, once again joined by uh, critic Paul Risker. Paul, how are you? And thanks for joining me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Excited to be back on the show. Uh, Pity Pete couldn't join us, but um, he's kind of... Uh enjoying hopefully the grueling task of uh, relocating well he's bought a house so you know at the end of the day whatever what, you know whatever whatever stress he goes through moving he does now own a house and there's not many of us that can say that i don't think out there so uh, he's, he's, done, he's done well on that regard so yes but no anyway as i said thank you no thank you very much for coming on it is appreciated um and yeah i don't know where we're going to go with this when we go paul pastor paul then paul <laughs> the other one maybe we're going to call you paul the other one uh, on this on this show tonight I don't know. Uh, maybe we won't. We probably won't. Um, but so what we've got coming up for you uh, this week is um, the usual kind of uh, selection of features that you hopefully all know and love by this point. So we will jump into the foyer very shortly with some uh, pretty big movie news this week, uh, followed by um, popcorn movies, then our coming attraction, which is only one film this week that we're particularly excited about. And then at the uh, towards the end of the show, we will do uh, our feature reviews. We've got two feature reviews this week. We've got the new film from Brandon Cronenberg, Possessor, um, and the new film, the Netflix exclusive from Ron Howard, um, Hillbilly Elegy, which I find very difficult to say. I don't know why. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what we've got coming up uh, for this week's show. Um, but before we get there, as I said, we'll dive straight into the foyer with our with some some big film news this week paul i think you you would agree yeah um this is this is the news that all of um warner brothers slate um that's basically in the well it appears all of warner brothers slate going forward certainly for 2021 is going to be released day and date um on hbo max and in cinemas um and by all of warner brothers slate i mean all of warner brothers slate so things like i mean from my perspective things like dune the matrix 4 um, I mean, this is the kind of calibre of size of films that we're talking about here. So that's that's two very big examples. Um, uh, I don't know about Batman. Was that on the list? Um, I can't recall if it was. No. That might that might not be. But anyway, this this is this is huge. I mean, this Wonder Woman was doing this, and we, people thought maybe Wonder Woman was a one-off um, because it was because it, again because of the because of the way twenty twenty has been with cine, um, cinema releases and cinemas not being open. But this is massive um, for for cinemas, for the movie going public in general. Um, Paul, what do you what do you make of this news? Is this is this positive for anyone? Do we think? Or I mean, is it positive? I mean, is it positive for anyone? I guess it depends. Apart from Warner Brothers. Yeah, I mean, it depends what trend it sets. It depends what happens after this. I mean, this is almost like one move. Well, what's going to be the move after that? How are other people going to respond to it? It's almost, are we seeing some kind of seismic shifts in the way films are going to be released? Is this a uh, beginning of a kind of... Uh, a new beginning of sorts. I think it's going to be really interesting to just see what happens, how other, people, well, how other distributors actually respond to this. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, uh, but 
it's almost like a case of let's just see what happens. Do you think, I mean, my concern is that, my concern personally is that cinemas are going to struggle to cope here. Um, I think that I think the only loser here is surely is surely the cinemas. And from my perspective, the other loser is the audience because I I can't understand why. And I mean, don't get me wrong, like we do a film podcast on a weekly basis, so you could there is a, a fair argument to say we're quite into films more so than your average than a lot of people who do go to the cinema. What will be interesting to see is, as I said, from my perspective, I can't imagine seeing June anywhere other than the big screen. The first time I see it, I can't imagine. I can't yeah. imagine, even though I'm not. I don't think Wonder Woman's going to be very good, but maybe controversially, um, even that I, you know, I would rather see on the big screen first. Hundred percent, The Matrix Four. So these, these, and it's said it's not just these films. There's other films as well, which I'll try and find when I hand back over to you. So my concern is 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 the audience comes up short with the with the experience of the films because these films are meant to be played on a big screen and a lot of these films lose their impact on a small screen that's not to say that there's some very good home cinema systems out there there are um i'm lucky enough to have a decent home cinema set up myself in terms of sound um and so even like projectors are out there that are very very good but they still don't rival the cinema for me so do you think paul that audiences are missing out do you think do you think it will be do you think audiences will adopt the HBO Max route or do you think people will stay with cinemas that's kind of the question for you I guess I think people will adapt um, there will be an initial pushback if you start kind of seeing a reduction of theatrical releases if you see the demise of cinemas there will be a pushback people aren't necessarily going to accept it straight away but we as people we do adapt that's what we do we might kind of um, complain about it, throw our toys out of a pram. But fundamentally, we're not going to kind of say no to movies. We love movies. We love stories as a culture. We will adapt to the technology. At one time, if you'd said to me, I would be watching as many films as I watch on my iPad, I'd have probably kind of frowned. But I, you kind of do adapt to the technology. I think it's interesting when you talk about cinema and they're the big losers. Let's think about it in terms of, say, Rocky IV, Apollo Creed. We love Apollo Creed. He kind of comes out pre-Drago fight and he's showboating. And as much as you love Apollo Creed, there's a part of you which kind of would like to see this guy get knocked down to size just a little bit. And I think cinemas have almost... I feel like they betrayed us first. I feel like they put the prices up too much. I feel like they didn't really kind of stay loyal to the audience. And the audience were able to go, as I've got friends who will say, look, it's going to cost me X amount for a cinema ticket, Netflix monthly subscription. I can see as many films as I want. I can see TV series. So in a way, I feel like cinemas have had this coming and all of these streaming platforms are kind of, just giving them a bit of a kind of clip around the ear. So I think that's an interesting thing to always look at. Have cinemas or have they treated us right as an audience? And actually, do they deserve a little bit of stiff competition that actually could really threaten them? And hopefully, this will kind of force them to really change up a little bit and give us something more, make that cinema experience worthwhile again. But how can you get, how can a cinema offer you more than? 
15.99 a month and you go into the cinema as much as you like what what else can a cinema do for you than that come on yeah yeah <laughs> like, okay yeah, if, yeah i mean okay maybe excluding there you surely you've got to exclude those chains that offer that service because well, that is incredible value well <laughs> no but 15.99 a month and you have to pretty much commit to 12 months now if you're on a zero hour contract uh which i have actually been on zero hour contract work at times that's a big commitment to make and so if i did like smaller packages that would be really good um a kind of pay-as-you-go kind of thing i think there are little things like that they could do it is difficult for cinemas just in terms of you know, what what more can they do because you don't because you've got the traditionalists who want a certain kind of experience and they don't want all of these new kind of um kind of inventions which which is completely transforming the way you go and see films so it's you've got to kind of split audiences it is and they've got to cover their overheads so it is a really tough thing uh, for cinemas to contend with i do think that 15.99 a month is fantastic i just think that could be a bit more flexible because the kind of reality for a lot of people out there like i say zero hour contract work or minimum wage it's not even minimum living wage and I think cinema is such an important part of our culture and I just think make it that little bit more accessible because I think the complaint I've heard from their, you know, some friends is the cost and the film that you're seeing is just not worth it. It feels like when we were a little bit younger and you went, there seemed to be better films out. It doesn't seem like you're seeing the quality of films on the big screen that you used to. Yeah, there are the occasional ones, but it's more of a trickle. But I do kind of sympathise with the cinemas. It is a really tough place. I mean, and you're seeing a technical revolution. So how can... it's Then again, cinemas had to contend with TV. They, the film did, the film business, it found a way. It's just a question of can it kind of weather this storm? But it's going to require the audience, people like us and our listeners to still kind of go and create the demand in the cinema. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think I think if it if it encourages some cinemas to up their game, then that I think is is a positive thing. Um, longer term, I, I'm concerned because it does mean essentially hands more power back to the studios would be my would be my major concern, yeah. would be my major concern. Um, who you know, if you want to if you want to throw throw shade on companies being slightly unscrupulous. Uh, then cinemas, you know, uh, probably not as bad as film studios. Um, but yeah, and I think if, if it encourages certain cinemas to up their game, then, then great because you know my local my local OD and I, I love it. They, they put the films on. I love going to it. But the projectors aren't in four K. It's twenty twenty. It was twenty twenty one in a month, and four K is on Netflix now. And you're not showing stuff on four K projectors in a, on a big screen experience. Like the big screen experience needs to be the absolute the absolute pinnacle of how you can see a film. I went across to. Um, the showcase, uh, the showcase um, cinema deluxe in Bristol um, during lockdown because they well after post lockdown they opened a bit earlier and the quality of the films we were seeing there was incredible and that's how you could do cinema yeah. and that's where and again that that for me is where you don't really mind paying a bit more to see a film yeah. when it's when it's incredibly well presented when it's kind of when you run in a cinema on like ten year old project ten or fifteen year old projectors um, and the screens are a bit dirty and like you, and you know you can't there are quite often now when we I mean this subject comes up a lot on the show um, and then make no apology for it but there you, you can quite often yeah I mean there's a lot of things I watch at home with a better picture quality than I watch in the cinema and that shouldn't be the way <laughs> like, no, no. that that absolutely shouldn't be the way so I guess I can see 
I can see positive. You've, you've swayed me a little bit. I can see the positives and the negatives from it. If it encourages cinemas to take their gloves off and, and kind of up their game, then that can only be yeah. a good thing. My concern yeah. is whether or not they will have the money to be able to up their game yeah. if um, no one is going to see the big tentpole releases um, yeah. in cinemas. I think for me, I might have been a little bit more swayed if there'd been a two or three week. Maybe it comes. Maybe it drops on the cinemas, and then two or three weeks later. Maybe they close the theatrical window a bit further, doing it day and date. For me, I'm, it's rare I'll side with a big cinema chain, uh, but I'm siding with the cinemas in this one. I think day and date is kind of a punch in the face for them, to be honest, and I'm not sure it's something they can, they'll can they be able to bounce back from. But well, they've bounced back before, so we'll see. Yeah, and the thing I'd say is I do agree with you. There is ways in which they can kind of you know stagger the releases and actually make sure cinemas are looked after. Because I remember sitting in the cinema... Um, with a friend once and he just said something to me which was interesting and he really captured my feeling and I don't know whether you'd agree with this but he said I don't almost care if a film's good I just enjoy sitting in this dark theatre in front of this big screen and there's something I know I love it yeah Yeah. I don't disagree I love it I think the first thing I did when I went back when when I went when yeah when lockdown went over I went over to Bristol to watch Lord of the Rings we had the cinema to ourselves uh, which was incredible, uh, and then I think I saw old old boy was on. That was an amazing oh, experience on the big screen. Yeah. They, I mean, they rolled out they, they rolled out some films. I think I saw Battle Royale, Old Boy, and Back to the Future yeah. in the same day, yeah. and I was like, that's an experience. But yeah, there's just something about there's something about the cinema experience that I love, and it's the one thing that I it's the one thing I've missed. I'm gonna throw it out there. It's probably the one thing I've missed more than the pub. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a social guy. I enjoy the pub. I'm not shy about admitting admitting that I like a beer. Uh, but yeah, I would say I've missed probably the cinema more than anything because is that you go into that dark room. It's a complete escape. Even if the film's shit, uh, it doesn't hugely bother me. Like especially with an unlimited card. If the film's bad, great. Then I've it's, I've added it to letterbox. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I do miss the experience. And I hope there is a way for them to, to bounce back from this. And I hope there is some positives to take from it. And maybe it will only be 2021. We'll see. Yeah. We'll, we'll see where we go. Yeah. I mean, again, Warner Brothers, I mean, they they spend a lot of money on films. They want to recoup the cost as much as they possibly can, I guess. And Tenet's a prime example that it didn't do it. But Tenet was never going to save cinema. But that's a whole it's a whole other whole yeah. podcast on that one. Um, but very quick. Yeah. Very quickly, yeah, I'm really interested in something you said there about those films you went to see, uh, like Old Boy, Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, I was having this debate with a friend and we were actually kind of ties into what we were talking about, is how can cinemas up their game? And is it old films? Is it classic films? Do you think that could really... Do you think that can bring in, you know, enough of an audience to save cinema? I think it can help. I think it can help if they take the time to push them. Yeah. So I so because the amount of times I've sort of gone to see like classic films on the big screen and thought, oh, it's quiet. And then there's, there's a couple of times I've been when it's been really busy. Akira was absolutely rammed, uh, and Term- the Terminator Two re-release that was sold out. They put on extra nights for that. Yeah. But both of those had they had some they had been pushed. Right. Um, yeah. They had been advertised and they had been pushed. A lot of the time they just go, oh, Back to the Future's on tonight. Or Jurassic Park's on tonight, and they just put it on the listings. And then if you miss it, if you, unless you check the cinema listings daily, like I do, um, then you're going to miss these things. But when they've pushed them, they're busier. So I think, yeah, I think there's a big. Pete and I have talked about this at, at length before, but I think there's there's certainly a big, big room for manoeuvre. And like, don't get me wrong, like Old Boy wasn't hugely busy. Um, neither was Battle Royale, but there were people in. Yeah. Um, on nights when there probably would have been no one in, so. 
Yeah, I'm all for older films. Um, I mean, if, if anyone's listening from a major uh, cinema chain, uh, which is unlikely, uh, Buckaroo Banzai, please, on the big screen. Would be, uh, that would, I'd be there for that. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, no. I, but another thing I was thinking was, could you do, like, you know, you talk about this fifteen ninety nine a month. Could you do kind of themed kind of packages where... Like if you're more into because I'm doing a lot of event cinema now as well with like theatre, live theatre productions or opera. If you do classic films as well as current films, could you do a series of like unlimited? But for, for some people, can almost choose what they want to see. Is so I'm just really curious to see how cinemas can respond here and whether there's an, a chain that's innovative enough to actually almost kind of find the kind of the answer amongst the uncertainty. Yeah, because it's not vibrating seats and sound effects. And, uh, no, and, uh, no, no, it's not vibe. It's not four DX. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Well, um, yeah, uh, that brings us to the end of in the foyer. Uh, yeah, as I said, pretty major news. Any thoughts on that? If you agree or disagree with us about the cinema experience, any ideas of what cinemas can do differently? Then uh, drop us a line on social media. We're more than happy to uh, hear people's recommendations. It's always fascinating. Um, next up, we have uh, the feature we like to call popcorn movies, which is just after this. So, Popcorn Movies is the section of the show where we talk about films we've watched over the past, well, since the last podcast. So, there will be less of these this week after our bumper edition last week. Um, and uh, I will throw straight into it, and I'll throw it straight over to you, uh, Paul Risker. Uh, what's the first thing you've watched recently that you wanted to talk about? I actually wanted to talk about uh, Leave No Trace. It's a film which I, I loved Winter's Bone. I actually think it's Jennifer Lawrence's perhaps best film because. In it, she really comes across as an actress, whereas so often she comes across as a star. And I really kind of wish she would have pursued the kind of the actress um, identity. I think there is a difference between stars and actors. Um, maybe kind of listeners will disagree with that, uh, but I do feel like there is a difference. Uh, so I loved Winter's Bound, so I was eager to see Leave No Trace. Absolutely loved it. It's just something so beautiful about that film. It's so simple, but so effective. And it actually moves you to tears, I find. I think it's one of those films where I'd actually say, even if you don't cry, you can almost feel yourself welling up. Because it's just, it's such a beautiful arc that the kind of director creates. Um, and it's how, not to give spoilers away, but how characters all get what they need. They battle through the adversity and they all come away with what they need. But there's something so sad about watching that come about. And as I say, eager to see for uh, since its first release and so glad I finally made the time and I just wish I'd made the time a bit sooner to watch it because it's a genuinely beautiful film um light easy watching but very very rewarding so one I definitely recommend to any listeners that haven't seen it do go check it out yeah I thought it was really good it's a very very moving film um and uh, Thomas and Mackenzie you talk about act actors um and stars Thomas and Mackenzie I think is one of the uh, best talents that's working today and she's incredible in this uh, Ben Foster has come back 
certainly come back from the brink of being a poor man's Ryan Gosling of late as well. Yes. Um, and <laughs> certainly, um, yeah, certainly been delivering some great performances. So, yeah, no, I, yeah, absolutely. As Pete would say, uh, uh, I would co-sign on that one. Okay, excellent. <laughs> so, okay, so the first one for me this week is a film I've been meaning to watch for many a year. Uh, that is When the Wind Blows, directed by Jimmy T. Murakami, uh, based on a graphic novel, I guess would be a fair description. Uh, that's the description I'm going with, by uh, Raymond Briggs, who did the artwork for The Snowman. Uh, as far as I'm aware, um, this is a yeah an, an animated uh, animated feature uh, based around the kind of a snapshot of the lives of an elderly British couple who um, live in a fairly isolated rural community I think and prepare themselves for an impending nuclear war um, and kind of follow the government's instructions, build themselves a shelter, then a bomb hits and it kind of sets, it focuses in the aftermath of what would happen in in a nuclear strike similar in tone i would say to the 1984 kind of uh the television film uh from the bbc threads um certainly similar in tone to that it covers a similar similar topic um what's quite interesting to me is the is yeah this is this is heartbreaking stuff um from from start to finish the elderly couple it, it, by my eyes today they almost seem like naive brexiteers um and i almost wanted <laughs> to start with i was almost willing willing their mutual destruction i just had a feeling that behind the scenes this couple might be a little bit racist um and perhaps had what was coming to them but um you know the cynic in me the cynic in me my heart warmed to the couple uh, by the end and i couldn't i couldn't help but feel sorry for them no all, all joking apart yeah it's um it's a fantastically um, animated piece of work um, it looks looks really really nice. It's got a, a great sense of character to it, and um, yeah, even even the, the even the cynic in me um, was struggling to struggling to hold back tears at the end of this. The end of this film is absolutely devastating. So I would say, yeah, just just be warned. Bring tissues. Um, it's it's quite a hard hitting film towards the end. Um, and you know, if you needed any other lessons than twenty twenty, not to always listen to what the government tells you uh, and take them and take them by their word. Um, here's another example for you. Um, that is probably the worst review of when the wind blows that you will ever hear uh paul what have you got next <laughs> well I'm, I'm gonna try and go with something that we're not telling yeah. people they're gonna cry <laughs> yeah, good shout. okay because yeah. i said people are gonna cry you've said yeah so i'm gonna go I, i'm gonna i think we should trust in billy friedkin okay. william friedkin okay um documentary just come out uh, i think 101 films released it um friedkin uncut he's I mean, what do you say about Freakin? Some of the films he's made, Exorcist, uh, French Connection. I mean, you can just name so many. He's. I always remember hearing the story about like the French Connection car chase. How they just got in the car and they just did it. And I remember hearing that story and thinking, so they basically put the lives of pedestrians and other drivers in New York City on the line, literally put them in danger. And I thought that's one of the most must be one of the most maverick things any filmmaker's ever done, and I think it really does you know capture the essence of freaking who kind of would sometimes make his kind of films on the edge. He would try and kind of live the films before. Sometimes he'd actually try and really know, like they'll say like to live and die in LA. That film really does feel like LA. If you watch French Connection, it feels like New York. And one of the things you get from this documentary is how much he actually kind of understood the world of the films he was making, how much research he would kind of do. Um, it's 
really fast. If you've been in, if you're interested in freaking, it's really worth watching. If you're just interested in cinema, it's you know definitely worth taking a look at. He's one of these people who will just give you his opinion. He will just tell you what he thinks, and it goes through all of his films, and you get some really interesting reflections from the people involved. You've got the likes of Quentin Tarantino. Uh, kind it's of not like Tarantino to ever miss an opportunity to be, on, uh, to be on a documentary about a <laughs> filmmaker. I won't have it. No, <laughs> no, absolutely. But it, it really is just, it's such a fun documentary to kind of watch. The only thing, obviously, with these kinds of films is you get to the point where it feels a little bit repetitive, where the, the kind of sound yeah. of certain voices, the kind of montages, oh, well, we've got to go to this film now, and then you've got the next film. So it sometimes does have a feel of just being a bit repetitive, but Freakin' is such a fascinating character. And whatever you think you know about him, you kind of learn other things, like kind of Juno Temple's talking about when she had to do that nude scene in yeah. uh, Killer Joe, and she was really uncomfortable, so Freakin' basically dropped his <laughs> pants. Fair enough. It's yeah. like... Yeah. Uh, and Gina Gershon, oh, they're talking about how much he hated, he didn't like her, and she bumped into his wife, and his wife said to her, oh, he loves you, and she was shocked, and of course, like, uh, Freakin's wife told him, and he called her up, and he's very kind, he's, I think Gershon talked about how he's a method director, so there's so many wonderful little tidbits you learn about him, and he's one of those true kind of character directors, and you almost kind of, you kind of almost miss those. I don't. I, I don't know whether it's fair to say, but he feels yeah. like one of a kind. Uh, quite yeah, a special absolutely. kind yeah. of filmmaker. No, I would agree with that. And what's that called? Sorry, did you say? Uh, Freakin Uncut. Good. Um, yeah, a film, and again, not something that will make you cry, um, unless you're scared of spiders. In which case, it will probably reduce you to tears immediately. Um, I caught up with a film from 1990. Haven't seen for years. This is um, Arachnophobia. Um, so it was nice to this was this was one of those films that at the time we were talking the other day certain films were massive when they came out and for me I just remember arachnophobia being absolutely everywhere like everyone was like have you seen arachnophobia have you seen arachnophobia like absolutely everywhere so I remember this being massive I haven't checked box office gross to confirm that at all but I just remember this being in this being like uh, not that I was standing at any water coolers in 1990 because I would have been eight, but this this strikes me as one of the big water cooler movies. 1990. This predates Jurassic. I sat there. There was a few shots in this, and I was like, "That's quite Jurassic Park. That's a bit Jurassic Park." That shot, and then I realised Jurassic Park was three years later. So, um, ah, well, you know, um, it's only a couple of shots. It's not a wider influence. So this is yeah, Arachnophobia uh, by Frank Marshall. Um, this for anyone who remembers stars uh, Jeff Daniels, um, Harley Jane Kozak, John Goodman, Julian Sands is in this. Um, Henry Jones, Markel Taylor. There's a there's a there's a raft of people in this. This basically tells the it's a campy it's a campy silly creature feature um, about killer spiders that are brought back from somewhere in South America, if I remember rightly, um, and in- inexplicably seem to mate with um, with standard with not st- with American house spiders um, and and um, certainly multiply at the most ridiculous rates I've ever seen in film. Um, for the most part, I'll be honest, it stands up pretty well. Um, Jeff Daniels is, is always is always entertaining and watchable for my liking. John Goodman here is um, John Goodman's great as the exterminator. Um, he's he's a lot of fun. Um, Julian Sands is camping it up as Julian Sands always always tends to do. So um, it's that mostly stands up pretty well. I would say it's. Uh, it probably takes a little bit too long to get going in terms of kind of getting to the spider action. There's probably, I'd say, probably t- 
maybe 10 minutes too long of kind of just kind of suburban life in in the town in which it's set but that being said the finale the last 20 minutes is i think superb there's some great practical effects here um some of them look a bit silly but i think it adds to the charm of the film um jeff Jarrett is watchable the finale is is absolutely insane um so you yeah you could do a lot worse than revisit interactive if i'm honest it was uh, it was a fun watch and yeah i would yeah check it out again if you haven't for a while yep. so i guess kind of in terms of um you know, it's not an old, this isn't an old film, this is a kind of another new recent release I'd go, uh, want to talk about here. Um, Viggo Mortensen's directorial feature debut, Falling. Um, I mean, what can you say about him as an actor? I remember just not long after Lord of the Rings had finished, uh, we'd all had been released, and I think he did a Hidalgo, if I remember correctly. And I remember reading, I don't know if it was an Empire Total film, and they made a point that he's going to have to be careful in what film roles he chooses. I remember reading this review. I remember reading the very same review. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And yeah. I kind of remember at the time thinking, I'm absolutely right. And there's a chance Viggo Mortensen's going to kind of just drop off the edge of the earth almost, just going to disappear. And then you look at some of the film role, like, I mean, you look at the work he did with Cronenberg, and just since how he's built this really interesting career in front of a camera and so when you have an actor kind of do that when he finally steps behind the camera and he writes and directs it, there's a certain anticipation there's a sense oh, of sure, excitement yeah. no, i'm excited very excited about yeah. this one i'll be honest and it was almost like a, when i first heard about it i didn't care what it was about the only thing i cared about was i want to see what what this guy can do uh, behind the camera pen in hand uh, directing it's in, it's an interesting film in the sense that as I as I was watching it, I kind of felt this is a fairly safe film. It's not overly adventurous. There's nothing dangerous about it. He, you know, he offers a really nice performance. Uh, you've got Lance Henriksen, who's terrific. Laura Linney pops up, uh, but it is a film of really nice performances where I actually don't. I know I'm reading a lot of critics talk about Henriksen being great. I actually think. The entire cast are very good. Wherever you look in this film, it's a really well cast uh, story. But I think it's I kind of did actually I've, I have actually reviewed it in print, and I think it is just it's a film that almost it's not trying to be overly melodramatic. Almost, it's just trying to kind of offer you this very intimate kind of experience with these characters who are kind of rooted in Viggo Mortensen's own family um, there's some there's creative license taken so he hasn't it's not autobiographical there is yeah. um, I mean the film's dedicated to his two brothers and actually in the film it's a uh, his siblings it's a sister so it does kind of change it does make changes as I say, it's, it's a fairly safe film, not dangerous, but it's so it's so well cast, so well performed, and it's just got this beautiful kind of emotional rhythm to it, and you you can't help but just be enveloped in the kind of drama of these characters, and yeah. Lance Henriksen's character, whilst he sometimes seems cruel, which he is, and he's a very difficult character to empathise with, at the same time you feel maybe he's a product of his time, maybe he himself is he a product of maybe his father. So it's it 
there's a lot of sh- there's a lot of shades there as to how well how should you feel about the characters, and I think that's one of the things I kind of most appreciated about it that it's not like this kind of moral story of you know good and bad, but kind of the complexity of their human relationships. And it's so well written as well, and there's a brilliant moment. It's just almost worth watching just just to see this moment for itself, where uh, Lance Henriksen as Willis basically describes Picasso, and just when you watch the film, wait for it, because it's just... <laughs> I don't know whether how improvised it was compared to how scripted, but I kind of it was one of those moments which generally had me kind of... Uh, crack up i thought it was absolutely uh, a brilliant bit of performance and writing nice yeah no i'm excited for that one and yeah lance Henderson's performance is getting a lot of praise but it's interesting that you add, add that to the list but yeah safe so yeah we'll, we'll get to an, we'll get to possibly another safe film uh, when we get to our feature reviews later on yeah <laughs> for sure um but before we get before we get to that maybe safe film there's another film from director ron howard i wanted to talk about today that i've revisited um uh, this is Backdraft. Is it, have you seen Backdraft recently? Um, wow. This is quite a film. Um, I wouldn't say that in necessarily a positive way. It's it's such a very bizarre film to revisit, to be honest. It's a very bizarre film to revisit. Um, you've got um, a hell of a cast here. You've got one one of the bald, a Baldwin. I forget, which, I forget which one off the top of my head. Uh, you've got Kurt Russell. You've got Scott Glenn. <laughs> Um, you've got Robert De Niro, you've got Donald Sutherland. It's a very, very starry cast here, to be honest. Um, and it's set around, but it's set around a particular Chicago, the Chicago Fire Department, um, and, and that kind of is as much story as the film kind of gives you, to be honest. Until the until the second hour finally rolls around. Um, yeah, I mean, what did I think? The, the practical effects stand up really, really well. The fire effects are incredible. I remember being shown this as a kid as some kind of fire safety video. Um, I think my, my dad was a police officer. He had friends, friends who were firemen. We told him it was bollocks, but he still he still showed it to us anyway. Um, as kind of like a, as, a, as an anti-fire thing, which, you know, I get it. It's But but that, that being all joking apart, visually, like, the fire effects still stand up. It looks fantastic. Like... How they did that on set because it, it, it was it was I don't think it's CGI to be honest it might it, it would be early days if it was and it doesn't look like CGI so even if even if it was I'd like to I'd, I if there's a making of I'd be interested to watch it um, probably more so than I would be to watch the film again because the film itself is a fucking mess <laughs> I'll be honest uh, the first hour very very little happens it's incredibly dull you could lose an hour of this film and still have a film it runs a full two hours twenty minutes. Um, it's very, very, very dragged out and dull in in places. Then there's a there's a sex scene on a fire engine. That's entertaining. Uh, I'll give it that much. Um, and then there is some ludicrous story that starts in that it turns out to be. If you haven't seen it, then list, look away now for or listen or whatever. You know where I'm coming from. Spoiler <laughs> warning: essentially coming up. Um, one of the firefighters turns out to be setting the fires because they're not. It's just ridiculous. The firefighters are actually setting fires, um, and it's just. And then there's a whole. It's just. It go basically. It goes from boring nonsense to absolutely ridiculous. To absolutely ridiculous. It goes from nothing happening to being completely insane in terms of its set pieces. There's fire everywhere. There's overly dramatic scenes. It kind of. It's kind of Top Gun with firefighters wouldn't be too far off what this is to be perfectly yeah. honest. Um, I guess if you're looking for positives, and uh, you know, as I was reading somewhere the other day, it's it's kind of a tribute. It's a 
it's a warm tribute to firefighters, I guess, and that's you know that's not a bad thing. They do do a good job, but it's not a good film. Um, it's certainly, and we were talking, I think, last on the last show about um, the inconsistent. Maybe we should do. Someone should write a book called "The Inconsistencies of Ron Howard." Um, <laughs> Um, and this is, you know, this is definitely one of his weaker films. And I'll be honest, I regretted revisiting this. I wish I'd kind of kept the fond memory. I was like, Badroff was cool, wasn't it? And you're like, no, it's not, dude. Like, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't heartily recommend Badroff, to be honest, anymore. Um, and that, I think, have you got any more you wanted to talk about? Or? Uh, no, not necessarily. I just, it's, fun, it's funny that you mention, uh, you know, Badroff and that, because I always remember it uh, being on TV and every time I tried to watch it, I would always fall asleep about halfway through. But I do always remember when you talk, when someone says to me backdraft, I always remember, you know, the, obviously the cast. I always remember the, some of the practical effects, but I always remember the sex as a young boy or as a young man watching that. I always remember the sex on the fire engine kind of moment it's always kind of stayed with me but yeah I've, I've never been able to go back and watch it all the way through because it's just like you say it's just so laborious it it just it yeah and i know he makes long films but this is one of the, those long films where it's like you need to you know it needs to end just needs to end yeah absolutely um and talking of things that need to end, the popcorn movie section needs to end, and it is going there to. Go. It is going to right here. I'm cutting it off. Uh, <laughs> um, so we'll be back after this brief break to talk about uh, our. There'll be one coming attraction this week, and we'll talk about that after this. So uh, back we are. So the coming attraction we wanted to talk about this week is a new Netflix release and the long-awaited next film from uh, director David Fincher. Uh, this is Mank. Um, this uh, this stars who have we got in this? Gary Oldman, Charles Dance, Amanda Seyfried. Um, Gary Oldman um, plays, I believe, screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz um, as he races to finish Citizen Kane. Um, I, yeah, I mean it's a pretty big, <laughs> it's a pretty big film. I would say it's the Return of David Fincher. It stars Gary Oldman. It's about film. Um, it's about Citizen Kane. Um, I don't think you can give Fincher much a much bigger scope than this. To be honest, um, excited about this one, Paul. Always excited about Fincher. Um, he's one of those filmmakers that really kind of captured my imagination when I was a film student. Really, him and Scorsese, definitely two of those filmmakers that cemented my love for film. So whenever a David Fincher film comes along, I'm always really excited to um, kind of see what it's uh, – just to experience it really yeah I'm, I'm with you he's definitely a filmmaker that again one of those filmmakers that I haven't loved all of his recent stuff as much as his well not necessarily his earlier stuff um, yeah his more recent stuff I haven't loved all of it as, as much Gone Girl I could sort of take or leave Benjamin Button was, yeah. was solid but I didn't think was fantastic um, but still he's certainly one of those filmmakers that if Finch's name's on it, it will get watched. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. I will certainly, will certainly be watching this. Um, Gary Oldman, for me, I think needs a good film again, and this might be it. Um, I, you know, I, I will. I don't think he deserved the Oscar nomination, even for was it Darkest Hour, the Churchill film that yeah. he got nominated for? Did he win yeah. for that? I can't 
can't. I think he may have won. I think he might have won. But yeah, Darkest Hour was was yeah. kind of Bre- Brexit the movie, in my opinion. That's twice it's come up on the show. It's not deliberate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, I, I haven't been struck on Gary Oldman's recent output. To be honest, I think for me, he needs he needs a good film. I think this will be it. I, I can't. I don't see how this is going to be bad. To be honest, with the with the talent involved, with the subject matter, with just everything about it, with how I mean the way it looks to have been shot, it looks like it's it looks absolutely incredible from the trailers, um, and that is out. Well, that'll be out as we as this show is being recorded. It's out at the moment actually, so um, that's why we haven't seen it yet because we're making this show for you at home. Um, so yeah, that was a very brief coming attraction, but that's kind of the film that we will be certainly feature reviewing on the next episode uh, for sure. Um, and we'll jump out of uh, the very shortcoming attractions this week uh, and straight into um, the feature reviews after this. So our kind of first film we're going to discuss here in this section is uh, Possessor by Brandon Cronenberg, obviously son of David Cronenberg. Kind of body horror you know, from the son, you know, whose father really kind of, you know, you can't even begin to understate, overstate the influence Cronenberg has actually had over body horror. So it's really great to see the son uh, following in his father's footsteps. The one thing that immediately struck me about this film was, and I'd love to throw it to you, Paul, is I describe it as a punch in the face, a film that just walks up, punches you in the face, and it feels like a throwback to the good old days of kind of, you know, body horror. Would you kind of agree with that, or do you think that's a bit of an exaggeration? No, I would, I would for, for the most part, agree with you. Just before we go into to kind of what we thought, though, just to set up the premise for a little bit. So it, it's we've got Andrea, Andrea Riseborough starring here alongside Christopher Abbott and Jennifer Jason Leigh, um, which again is a nice throwback, I think, to certainly to existence. Um, Possessor, and thanks to IMDb for the, for the setup on this one, Possessor follows an agent who works for a secretive organisation that uses brain transplant technology to inhabit other people's bodies, ultimately driving them to, to commit assassinations for high-paying clients. So Andrea Riseborough's character is a hitman, is a hit, well, hit, hit person, or an assassin, shall we say? We'll just go with assassin. Uh, assassin who occupies other people's bodies, um, and basically they kind of do they 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 either assassinate other people or they kill themselves. Um, and yeah, it's it's a pretty extreme, it's a pretty extreme, incredibly violent film in places. Um, and going back to what you were saying, Paul, do I agree that it kind of hits you in the face and is? Is a is a delightfully gory, over the top, old school throwback. Um, you can probably tell from that sentence. I absolutely agree with you. Um, yeah, no, I th- I thought this this was yeah. It's uh, visually, I thought the film looked ap- looked absolutely fantastic. Um, the he's clearly uh, Brandon. The Brandon Cronenberg is definitely much like his father. I would say on the basis of this, more so than antiviral, which I didn't go much on to be honest, which I think was certainly an earlier film if not his first feature um i think certainly more so in this he 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 shows a better understanding of what makes this kind of cinema work so um although it is undoubtedly not a film for the faint of heart it is very very violent in places and i'm going to make no apologies for that um he knows how to use violence and he knows how to use it effectively um and i think there's a different that's that for me is when is when um violence stops becoming gratuitous and becomes kind of vital to the to the mood of the film paul any any thoughts on that i mean i find it really interesting what i what you're saying because i actually would argue i didn't find it that violent to be honest i really didn't think it was particularly violent at all but i think you what you make me think about is 
Is it because it was part of a story? And I don't think there's any point where it's like, well, let's just have some violence for the sake of, like you say, it's not gratuitous violence. Yeah. So I think page, I think we're on the yeah. same page then. You yeah. Know, and yeah. It, in that sense, it works because there's nothing worse than gratuitous. You know, there's nothing worse than it. Um, one of the things I found interesting was Sean Bean's uh, character. He's, I mean, he, not to give any spoilers away, but he's hardly in it. Uh, he turns up for maybe a very brief uh, moment in the film. But one of the things I've always taken away from films is it's not about how long you're in the film, how many scenes you have. It's about the impact that you make when you are on screen. And for how little screen time he has, is one of the things that you remember about the film. He really does kind of, you know, create, he just has his presence. Um, and I'd be really interested to throw that to you, kind of what, you know, the impression that he made on you. Because as I say, he's, he's, he's hardly in it really. He's kind of dead very much in the shadow of the other actors, but he kind of steps out of their shadow when you kind of remember the film. Yeah, I would, I would say, I would say that's fair, but I'd say all the yeah. cast are great here, to be honest. I don't think, I don't think, although I think Sean Bean had certainly had an impact. Um, and Sean Bean is an actor that I think needs to be, he needs to care about the material. Um, and for me, Sean, Be- it's pretty obvious when Sean Bean's turned up for a paycheck or when Sean Bean's taken with a script, um, more so than a lot of other actors, uh, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. Um, this one he seemed to care about, and I think he he was good here. Um, I know where you're coming from. He he didn't. He does have a pretty big impact in the film um, with a relatively small role. But for me, um, the, it's got to be it's got to be the two hander of Andrew Riseborough and Christopher Abbott here. I think Christopher Abbott is an incredibly underrated actor and should be a lot more yeah. famous than he is. Um, and Andrea Riseborough, I think, is just carving out a superb niche for herself in some really really awesome dark kind of edgy edgy sci-fi horror material she's kind of the go-to for that but she's so good at it she's got this kind of ethereal presence on screen like she's i don't know she's kind of at the same time she's 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 like staggeringly beautiful at the same time as just looking fucking terrifying like there's some there's just there's just she's she's got that she's got a very distinctive look about her that I think lends yeah. itself very well to these to these kind of films and also her performances I think are are superb I think again both her and Christopher Abbott just incredibly underrated um, at what they do and maybe they're happy maybe they're happy making the films that they're making I get certainly get the, that impression mm. from Andrea Riseborough for sure mm. um, but I think she's she's great here and I think for this is just one of those films that I think if you don't have the cast to take this kind of material seriously because it is out there material in the wrong hands it could be the you could quite easily ham this up and the film wouldn't work um and you could go you could go down the kind of you go down the kind of upgrade route with this and that's a very different film to this and i loved upgrade you could go down that route this film wouldn't have the impact it has um so i think it helps that the cast the cast are in this the cast are very very good um and i think the cast deliver some great performances i mean for me though when you talk about like her ability as an actress, it's the fact that she can just morph into anything. You can almost give her any kind of role and she can she can take it and run with it. I mean, she is one of the probably most underrated actresses currently working, but so is Abbott. I mean, Abbott's incredible. But I still think, for me, I, I don't know if you'd agree, but James White is such a crucial film to his on-screen persona. I kind of feel like, for some, air, for some reason, I can't quite pin it down as to why, but it almost like all the other roles seem to kind of spin off of that. There's a kind of, I think there's a fragility that he puts across in that James White, that he's that carries over 
here and he carries over into his kind of other films and he he's very nuanced i'm not saying the kind of he doesn't have that nuance because he definitely does uh, but i do feel like that james white film is so kind of important to introduce I haven't seen ah, it. Right, I okay. haven't seen it to be honest. So um, I will find it. Time it's on Amazon so, Prime, yeah. so I will uh, yeah. I will check it out. But yeah, I think he's yeah he's great. I think. Yeah. Um, but again, like you say, just two really underrated actors. Um, it, but maybe again, it's often they were thing with like someone like William H Macy was he was always happy to play the supporting role, and he seemed to understand and people who kind of would recognise this about him was you don't have to be in the main role to actually for it to be your film you can actually be in the supporting role and steal the film and William H. Macy was one of those actors that could kind of do that and you almost look at these two if they keep putting films like this together that they are putting together they don't need the big 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 films because no, I think it's easy for us to go. Oh, they must want to be more famous. Um, they've probably got they've probably got a, a, a nice, a better sized house than we'll ever live in, and are earning a decent wage from these films. Um, and they're probably probably quite comfortable, and probably don't want to be more famous. And they're making some 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 incredible films. So, um, yeah, it's easy to go. Oh, they want to be more famous. Oh, they should be more famous. They might they might not want that. Um, but going back to going back to Possessor, I think yeah, I think it's, it's this is definitely one of those films again, not for everyone, but I think you'll you'll kind of know if you like this and I think if you like um, if you like David Cronenberg stuff I think you'll find a lot to like here uh, but I think there is there is more atmosphere here than I've seen in some of, of David Cronenberg stuff I think the whole film the whole film kind of oozes exudes atmosphere um, and I think that's that's down to the the soundtrack I think is is fantastic um, I think the direction is fantastic the film looks like the looks up absolutely superb um, and I think it's one of those films that is just just the abs- a, a, a some of its parts and I think it's easy to it would be very easy for people to go oh I don't like violence I'm gonna I'm gonna swerve this and that's the thing I kind of know where you're coming from Paul when you say I didn't really feel it was that violent and I think that's because the violence isn't gratuitous like there are some scenes there are some scenes of violent of very violent acts and there is a lot of blood in this film don't get me wrong but it never feels it never feels superfluous to to the events it feels like it adds it feels like it adds to Andrew Riseborough's character and exactly what she's going through um and I think it and I think on that basis I think this is this is one of its one of definitely its greatest successes I think and also like you talk about atmosphere it is so moody but if you think about this and that's, I do agree with you the score but if you think about the cinematography and the lighting it kind of it just understands how to create that mood for us and because you are dealing with maybe high concepts or kind of kind of theory and you're actually asking the audience to say yeah i i buy into this is it suspend your disbelief you're asking them to do that by kind of creating that mood and then you've got the performances that goes a long way to kind of the audience doing that but one of the things i loved about it was the procedural aspect it's a way in which you know how they prep them for an assignment how they it's like a kind of mission control in outer space there's a kind of they put into this other body and they're still in touch and there's something about kind of the management side the procedural which really kind of almost as high concept as it is it almost grounds it and it keeps it grounded in another way and i think that's where the kind of skill as a filmmaker is how to ask us to suspend our disbelief in one sense but in another sense you give it to us in a way that feels very real 
like very corporate. And so that's one of the things that kind of really impressed me was just that understanding that kind of balance. And it reminds me of the kind of thing like the 12 Monkeys with Gilliam and how he kind of creates a very industrial feel to it. It doesn't make it eye end. He actually brings it right down. And I kind of think, I think those are the kinds of things we appreciate more and more now as a kind of an audience when you have that mix of fantasy with reality. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd completely agree with you, and I think it, it works really, really well. That kind of like twisted, twisted sci-fi, yeah. fantasy, horror thing. It's a, it's an amalgamation of all those, <laughs> all those genres. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's certainly one of the more, and I mean, it's certainly one of the most distinctive films you'll see in in twenty twenty yeah. for sure. There's 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 no doubt in that, and I think it, yeah, as much as the you know there are there are moments where you think, okay, this is definitely you know this is definitely the kind of. Uh, heavily inspired by the work of his father which is which is fully understandable i th- for me this was whereas antiviral i think in parts felt like there were there were moments of kind of superfluous like here's a bit of body horror yeah. um and it fe- it almost it yeah. felt in, in in many parts of, of antiviral it felt like he was doing it deliberately to go look i am son of david yeah like, like we get it and i, and I think it felt it felt almost like he was trying too hard to make yeah. what he thought people wanted a brandon cronenberg film to be Whereas I get the feeling with Possessor, he's gone right. Fuck that. Oh uh, this is the film that I want to make. This is this is Possessor. This is Brandon Cronenberg as a director, and you can see the the influence, the the inspirations there from the body horror elements. But you know, anyone who makes a body horror film now is going to have been inspired by David Cronenberg at some point. But this very this feels to me like a Brandon Cronenberg film, and this feels to me like it could be the first the first of many from a from a genuine auteur yeah. filmmaker. Um, from my perspective yeah. no, I, and I mean I completely agree with you you don't feel like he's in his father's shadow here you feel like you could almost have in the cinema David Cronenberg film play next to Possessor and they're two completely different films what the reaction from yeah. the audience coming out of Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor would be different to the audience coming out of uh, the David Cronenberg film he, yeah he, he's not lost in his father's shadow at all here. this is something this is him this is his voice yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I mean, I can't, uh, I can't really recommend it highly enough. To be honest, I think it's, I think it's a great bit of work, um, and I, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. As I said, not for the faint of heart. So I can't, I can't recommend taking your nan to see Possessor. Uh, not that you'll get to, to take your nan to see it because it's on VOD. So it is now available on video on demand. So if you get a chance to rent it or buy it, certainly do so. Yeah. Um, definitely one of the more distinctive films we will see this year, um, and I, I really, really liked it. So uh, I can't recommend Possessor highly enough. Uh, we'll be back after this with our next feature review. So this is uh, the next one we want to talk about is um, the one that I struggled to say at the beginning of the film, and I probably struggled to say probably struggled to say um, throughout the review. This is the latest film from Ron Howard, um, and the big one of the big um, Netflix awards contenders this year, I think, um, with the cast that are involved. This is Hillbilly Elegy, um, which is based on the um, book of the same name, and this stars um, Amy Adams. Glenn Close. Who else have we got in here? Um, Haley Bennett. Um, who's the guy? Who's the younger guy in it that was really, really good? The main guy. I've completely forgotten his name. Um, but there's some. There's some very big hitters. Very big hitters in this film for sure. Um, this has. Yeah. So this is. And again, directed by Ron Howard. We talked about Ron Howard earlier in the show about, in my opinion, and I don't think you disagree with me here, Paul. Uh, possibly one of the most inconsistent directors um, ever to have ever to have graced our cinema screen. So. 
I this is the kind of thing I think he makes quite well to be honest. So I kind of was I was relatively I was kind of looking forward to this to be honest. Um, it's got a it's taken an absolute hammering. Um, it's taken an absolute hammering in the wider press. I think it's like, it's Rotten Tomatoes rating is something like thirty seven or something like that, and it's the the cast have come out to defend it. Um, so it'll be interesting. to get to what you thought think in a minute, but the kind of the the premise of it is it tells the story of a young man um, played by a young man called JD Vance played by Gabriel Basso who I've not really seen anything before and really impressed no. me here if I'm honest I thought he was very good um, played by Gabriel Basso it tells the story of his um, kind of hill hillbilly family back in his Ohio hometown um, he ends up being a law student um, despite his despite his for want of a better description working class background um, and it kind of goes into the the struggles of his family um, his mother played by Amy Adams and his grandmother played by Glenn Close here um, and the relationship with his sister played by Hayley Bennett and the kind of the struggles that he's gone through the struggles that he's, he's been raised with and how we kind of for want of again for want of a better word overcomes these and goes on to potentially have a successful law degree so it's I mean, we've been there and done that with seeing these kind of these kind of uh, guy from working class background done good kind of films. We've been there and done that before. But with that proviso in in mind, Paul, a what did you think? Uh, firstly, what did you think? And and b do you think it? Does, well, what did you think first before we go to? Does it deserve the passion that it's got? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. It was for what it is, it works. Uh, I think it's again one of those things you've got to temper your expectations. You know, there's a certain melodrama to it. It, it, it is, it's exactly what it's meant to be. Um, and for that, I enjoyed it. Uh, I definitely don't think it deserved the critical slating that it got. Um, I almost feel like a lot of critics, what I kind of read some quotes from some critics, and as I was watching it, I was almost kind of a bit lost as to kind of the, the venom, which was almost kind of uh, directed at it, to be honest. Um, one of the things I'd say is if you if it's based on the book, uh, I think it's based on the book by the actual character, isn't it? It's about his life, is it? Am I right in thinking that? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, yeah. so the book is autobiographical. Um, yeah. yeah, and that's the, the the JD character wrote the book. So yeah, um, yeah, go on. Sorry. So if that's the case, and they're kind of adapting this real life story to the screen, and if we're going to start saying, you know, criticising the direction the film takes or criticising the saccharine kind of themes, but if these are things that have happened to somebody and they're being put on screen as a kind of representation of someone's life journey, I think we need to be a little bit careful about, like I say, spewing venom or directing venom at it. I mean, we need to handle it with a little bit of kind of compassion and understanding. And actually a bit of, because this is someone's life story. This is someone's journey. This isn't somebody saying, I want to make a story about some working class kid who makes good. This is a working class kid who went through some kind of hell and, you know, it's his aspirational story. And perhaps we need to be very compassionate. And I know that's a strange thing to say in the current world we're living in with Trump <laughs> and Johnson and whatnot, but maybe we need to be a little bit more compassionate and understanding to the fact this happened. Um, and the same, the same stories are told over and over again. This isn't the kind of the only kind of story which is told. Disaster movies are told over and over again. You know, you can look at Force Awakens and that was pretty much a retelling of A New Hope. Yeah, critics yeah. kind of were like, oh, 
adoration. So it's kind of, if you're going to slate this film, there are plenty of examples where you should be just, you, you shouldn't even need to go and see the films. You should just be able to sit there with pen in hand or in front of your computer <laughs> and basically slate it. I'm calling for a little bit of compassion and understanding. And as inconsistent as Ron Howard is, is I think he's been hard done to here and treated I, quite badly. I, I don't disagree with you, to be honest. I mean, I, I think I think if you if you look at this, I, I think it's it's a safe it's a safe film in terms yeah. of its subject matter. We were talking about safe films before. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that. That's I'll take that criticism. If even if that is a fair criticism, it's a safe <laughs> film. It knows it knows what it wants to be. It sets out to do it. Um, but for me, this is this is a film almost as much about led by performance as it is about direction. And I don't think. And going on to positives here. I don't think you can fault any of the performances here. I think they are absolutely superb. I think Glenn Close is certainly overdue an Oscar, and I think if she doesn't get one for this, I'll be very, very surprised. Amy Adams, I think, always turns in, always turns in a great performance. Um, Haley Bennett, again, I think it's. I don't think I've seen her better than here. Um, and again, as I said, Gabriel Basso, who I've not seen in much before. I'm just going to see what he's been in before, actually, while we're talking. Um, I thought was was fantastic. Oh, he's turned up in. He was in Kings of Summer. Uh, and Super 8 apparently but when he was much younger um, so yeah I thought he was um, yeah I thought he was he was fantastic in this and I thought everyone was really good in it and for me yeah arguably the performances are, are, are strong, stronger than the film itself and I don't, don't get me wrong I'm not, not sitting here and saying this is like the f- best film of the year by a long stretch it's not it, it, it is a safe film and it, you know it doesn't take many risks but then I think it's pretty obvious if you watch the trailer what you were sitting down to see. It's a Ron Howard directed drama about a guy from a working class background. Like, and I think for what it does, if you go in, for what it does, I think it doesn't it doesn't a more than adequate job mm. of telling that story. I think yes. it's it's well acted, it's watchable. I was never bored. I always wanted to make it through to the end. Um, which compared to Backdraft, for example, uh, <laughs> it's a damn sight better film than Backdraft, yeah. uh, with without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. um, and certainly more engaging than certainly more engaging than some of Ron Howard's weaker work. So, no, I, I, I don't get it. I, I don't get the bashing of it. I think people have said it's heavy-handed. It's like, well, it's a Hollywood film. It's going to be heavy-handed. Like, it's a film. It's a medium that it, that is designed to evoke an emotional response, and I think it's you know I am going to come out and defend it. It was pretty obvious what you were getting when you went into it. Um, to be put to be to be frank, and I know I'm I'm with you, Paul. I thought it was, and again, that's again. I'm not. I just want to reiterate. It's not incredible. Like it doesn't set the world on fire, but I don't think it does a lot wrong. And you could do a lot worse than this for a performance-led mm. film. Yeah. Um, and also, there's moments in it which I I would describe as feeling very real and very authentic. Like some of the kind, some of the. Uh, almost quirky moments with a family it doesn't feel like it's been written and conceived and then handed to actors and then just performing it actually feels like this is a kind of thing some family at some point in time have been involved in this kind of humorous debacle Uh, and it really does capture the i mean it captures to me, it captures uh, maybe the complex again, not to use that word too much, but complexity of family. About families kind of can love one another, but they can also drive each other crazy, and there can be such strong animosity. Um, and and it, it does have that real feel to it. And when Amy Adams has those moments where she kind of goes off the rails, there are times when you feel like it's storytelling done in a convenient kind of way, an economical yeah. way, where you haven't got time to kind of spend forever setting up 
a choice or a decision. But it does, you know, you do get the sense that of this person almost breaking down, being kind of caught in the grip of her demons. And I've kind of had experiences with mental health issues, um, you know, and for me, it kind of had that real feel at times of like how quickly somebody goes over the edge. And actually, I found it really uncomfortable to watch in moments. Uh, it really, almost at times, I just wanted to pause the film briefly and just kind of reset because it felt kind of real. And it made it kind of unsettled me in some ways. And I don't know whether you'd agree with that. Yeah, I think that comes, for me, that probably comes down to the sum of the, yeah. And I think that, yeah, yes, is the short answer to that. Um, I think that a lot of that is down to the strength of performances in this. Um, for sure, and I, yeah, again, I just, I just don't get, I just don't get the hate, as you say. Like, there's, there's some, there's some decent writing here. Yes, it's, yes, it follows a formula. That it definitely follows a formula. But I think it's, it's, a, you know, there's a lot worse films that follow the same formula than this one out there, um, for sure. And I would agree, there are, yeah, there are definitely some really kind of heartbreaking moments here. Um, and you know, the cast, you know, if you're gonna. It's it's difficult when you kind of roundly bash a film and then you go well actually and I think it's caused Amy Adams certainly and I forget her exact words now um, has come out in defense has kind of come out kind of fight with the kind of all guns blazing in defense of the film really and I'm kind of on the cast side on this one to be honest because I just don't get it I just don't get it and as you say Paul like if you know for someone who's had personal experience with mental health issues such as yourself if you're sitting there telling me I had to pause I had to pause here and think okay i'm struggling with this 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 really feels quite accurate then the film's doing not a lot a lot right to be honest the film is doing a lot right if it's having that impact so um it's a bad film won't do that a bad film won't, will not have that emotional will will rarely have any emotional impact on you full stop so yeah i i, I agree i agree i think it does it certainly does more right than it does wrong yeah and also not to kind of go at tarantino but how many times i've watched tarantino's films and there are big problems with them and you get the likes of some of these kind of top-end critics who just almost seem to say well it's tarant my argument has been like um tarantino's last film if you put someone if you put someone else's name on that film there's no way he's walking out with five star reviews not There's a chance. No chance. Not a chance. No. And it feels totally like... all over the place. Yeah. Dark, badly paced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, and they would have been. It would have been taken apart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas someone like, I mean, like, definitely, like you talk about pacing. I mean, Glorious Bastards as a, you know, the second. Uh, you've got the first German officer, who it's a brilliant scene. But then you have another encounter with a German officer, and you're just thinking this is a repetition of the first one, and it just goes on and on and on. And Tarantino never gets pulled up for those kinds of things. Mm. And in a way, there's a very formulaic sometimes format to some Tarantino films where... Chapters. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And whereas I feel like Ron Howard, it's like we can can take a shot at Ron Howard. It's like I think also you can find with some critics, they like certain filmmakers and they won't take their shots at them. Um, And I do think Ron Howard's one of those filmmakers where... There's no one protecting him. It's an open season on every one of his... If you want to take a shot at him, take your shot. No one's going to stop you. And it's great to see Amy Adams come out and actually kind of defend this film because 
when you make a film, whether you in front of the camera, behind the camera, it's a real commitment. It's a, a lot of time. There's a lot of work goes into it. And it's an, and a film like this, when you're dealing with some of these themes, it's emotional and it is emotionally draining. So to see somebody who actually made the choice to make it, she didn't do this for a paycheck. She did this because she genuinely loved the script. She loved the project. And it's great to see her kind of come out and actually defend it. And hopefully, Val, this kind of, uh, what you'll now start to see is a pushback against the critics saying, hang on a second, maybe you've been a little bit unreasonable here. Uh, Hopefully we'll see that and it'll kind of give the film some traction, hopefully, maybe. Yeah, no, I'd be intrigued to see how well it does on Netflix. But what I would say before we close on it is, don't listen to the, on this one. I, they're, they're quite often, I am. I mean, I'm in lockstep with certain critics, quite more more so than I than I'm not. I, well, lockstep's maybe too strong, but generally, I tend tend to be on the, the side of, of the majority of critics quite often, more often than not. Uh, in this case, I'm not, and I would say certainly if you uh, certainly if you have Netflix, seek this one out. Um, and I think you'll probably have a decent enough time with it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely kind of worth recommending. It's, uh, yeah, not one to listen to the critics on, um, but it's it, it pretty much it does what it's meant to do. It gives you the, the very film that it's meant to be. Yeah. And it, it has moments which, you know, win you over. And, you know, it, it's definitely worth taking two hours out of. It's, it's one of the better Ron Howard films. And I don't think you can accuse it of being Oscar bait or anything like that. I think it's just a game because it's, I think we do need to remember this is based on someone's actual life journey. Um, So compassion and understanding. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Right, well, on that note, that brings us to the end of the Hillbilly Elegy review. You see how much I love saying it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so find that on Netflix. Um, we are pretty much done for the show this week. So, Paul, thank you for joining us again. Um, hopefully, we'll be back on uh, very well. We'll be back on next week at some point with a review of Mank. Um, hopefully, Pete will be back with us once he's um, a little more settled into his new place. Um, so, in the meantime, and then coming up in the next couple of weeks, probably the week after next, we'll be doing a some form of Christmas special where we'll be reviewing uh, Happiest Season uh, which I've had the ple- the absolute delight of watching and got a, a 236 likes on my tweet about Happiest Season which absolutely blew my mind I thought I'd completed Twitter I'll be honest at that point so we're going to be uh, we're going to be reviewing um, we're going to be reviewing Happiest Season um, at some point in the feature because it's great um, we'll also probably talk about Fat Man on the same Christmas show because I've caught up with that now that is a bizarre Mel Gibson starring Christmas film so that'll be in a couple of weeks time so uh, just giving you the heads up that there will be a Christmas special coming as it is that time of year um, but in the meantime I said we'll be back probably next week with a review of Mank um, among other things um, but in the meantime if you can follow us on at Strangers Cinema on Twitter Strangers in a Cinema on Instagram and Facebook and it'd be great to hear from you thanks for listening goodbye shut up and sit down